You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In a special episode of the Aspie podcast, Justin Bassey speaks to Lisa Curtis and Raji Rajakopalan. With Australian Prime Minister Albanese in Washington DC this week, and set to visit Beijing shortly after, they discuss the significance of the two visits and how the Prime Minister should approach his meetings with President Biden and Xi Jinping. They also look at regional security in the Indo-Pacific more broadly, with a focus on India's foreign policy and the India-Canada rift and whether it will impact the India-US and India-Australia relationships. Justin also asks Raji and Lisa to look ahead to 2024, with elections in the United States and India and the possible implications of the elections for security and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Well, I'm truly delighted to be joined today by two leading international experts on India, defence, security, the Indo-Pacific and technology. I'd like to welcome Raji Rajagopalan, Director of the Centre for Security, Strategy and Technology at the Observer Research Foundation, and Lisa Curtis, Senior Fellow and Director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Centre for a New American Security. You come from two great think tanks, both of which ASPE is proud to have strong links, and you've both been in Canberra speaking at ASPE's annual defence conference, Disruption and Deterrence. So it's great to have you both on the ASPE podcast. Lisa, this is your third time, in fact, on the ASPE pod. We've previously talked about deterrence and AUKUS, and today we're going to chat all things India and the Indo-Pacific. I know these are two issues about which you feel strongly, so welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Wonderful. And Raji, it's your first time on the Aspie pod. I should point out that you are also an Aspie senior fellow. So it's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. It's great to be here and to join the Aspie podcast with Lisa. Excellent. With so much going on in the world, I am keen to cover as broad a range of topics today as possible, including India's foreign policy, geopolitics and developments in the Indo-Pacific and then look forward to what will be election season in both the United States and India. But perhaps, given we're in Australia, we could start with a question on the regional impact of Australian policy and the recent news that shortly after his upcoming visit to the United States, the Australian Prime Minister will be headed to Beijing for a meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Lisa, can I start with you? And what you see are the benefits and risks for the US, India and the region from Australia's rapprochement with Beijing and the Prime Minister's visit to China. Well, yes, I think that, you know, we also have President Biden, who's going to meet with President Xi on the fringes of the APEC meeting coming up here very soon. And so it's not you know, surprising that the Prime Minister of Australia is going to meet with President Xi as well. But I think it's important that this not be seen as Australia making concessions to China, because of course it was China that illegally cut trade with Australia three years ago when Australia had called for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. So You know, I think one would hope that Prime Minister Albanese gets something for making the trip to Beijing, that Australia gains back its export market in Beijing for wine and and other products. I think there would be no point in him going unless Canberra gets something from the visit. So I think that, you know, this is really the important thing that it not look as if Australia is making concessions or feels that it did something wrong in the bilateral relationship because, of course, it was China. It was China that cut the trade. And so I think you know, that that's the important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I agree. I, I think uh, the trip uh, itself is uh, really important uh, and very positive, but there can be no concessions. Uh, there needs to be a strong statement that uh, stabilised relations are important but that Australia will still uh, stand by its principles uh, and its values and its uh, policies. I agree completely. It will be very interesting to see what public statements are made. Uh, Raji, what about you? Where where do you see these issues? No, like Lisa said, it's not going to be seen as sort of a step in concession to the Chinese. In fact, I think everyone is clear that things are not going to change. Everyone has got burnt individually or even collectively, like they have the first squad without a base, so to say. So everyone has learned the lesson. So I don't think anyone has concerns uh, that what happens to the quad, whether the 
what uh, wither away uh, it again and so on and so forth. But everyone is also clear that talking to the Chinese, one, it does not mean significant, any significant change. But at the same time, we all want to, um, and that there's no doubt that the Quad is going to go away. But on the positive side, I think all of us want stable relations despite China's problematic and belligerent behavior. India wants it, Australia wants it, the US wants it, the region wants it. So bringing certain amount of predictability and stability to the relationship of China with each of these powers. I think that's a key in a sense. Certain amount of predictability to be brought back to each of these relationships as well as with the region. I think that is something very, very critical. And therefore, even if you look at the US, the US has had several high-level visits to China in the last uh, few months. India has had its own engagements. And if anything, I think that can only lead to stability overall. So I think that's a good thing. So there is no concern, particular concern that Australia is going to make uh, sort of a separate peace deal with China. And that, uh, but from the Chinese perspective, there could be other rationale. China may want to split up the Quad, so to say, or other multilateral partnerships that are important in the Indo-Pacific. But the fact is that China still has the its wolf warrior diplomacy as the dominant strategy. The nature of China's hyper-nationalistic trend will not lead to, therefore, any consequential change in the relationship between China and each of us when you look at it. So all of us are at some level trying to achieve some semblance of normalcy, some certain amount of predictability and stability in our relations with China. So there is no particular worry or concern that Prime Minister Albanese will be meeting with Xi and how things might actually pan out in the coming months. Uh, Raji, I think predictability is a really important element there, not just for Australia and our friends, partners, allies, uh, but also in relation to China itself, that uh, for all of us, we do at times make mistakes. We have made mistakes over the years by being inconsistent. And so I think a real advantage of predictability is to be saying to Beijing, we do want stable relations, but if you step over the line from an action perspective, we will be calling that out. So yeah, predictability, really, really important. Uh, I think your questions, uh, and Lisa alluded to this as well in terms of concessions of what China might want itself. Uh, I think what will be interesting will be where Beijing takes uh, the trade relationship. I think they really do want to uh, get into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And in my view, that uh, negotiations beginning with Beijing, uh, with China on the TPP would be a concession way too far. Uh, we haven't seen uh, anything from Beijing to suggest that they will be stopping their economic coercion or their malicious trade measures. So those types of things will definitely be key to the, uh, to the relationship. Speaking of key relationships, uh, I'm interested in both of your thoughts on the status of the US-India relationship. We've seen US-India, Australia-India and Quad partnerships develop at top speed in recent years. And there was clearly a level of intimacy amongst the leaders at the recent G20. Yet there's often a but or a caveat somewhere in the discussion, including on India's trade policy, Russian policy or human rights record. So Lisa, do you see these issues as a challenge for closer ties with India, or do you think increased references to India as an imperfect democracy are actually a sign of how far the relationship has come, as it shows the US and other countries like Australia can mention such concerns with less fear that it will actually upend the relationship? I think there's no question that the US-India relationship is stronger than it ever has been. You can see this from the overwhelmingly successful visit of Prime Minister Modi to Washington last June, as well as the highly productive meeting between President Biden and Prime Minister Modi a couple of weeks ago at the G20 summit. This is really evidence that issues like India's trade policy or neutrality toward Russia, or even the concerns surrounding religious freedom in India, that those are not impacting the U.S.-India relationship in any significant way. And I think uh, the White House coordinator, Kurt Campbell, has said that President Biden raises some of these concerns in private, that these are not issues to 
harangue India about in public. And I think this is the right approach. Even President Trump, when he was in power, he raised the issue of respect for religious minorities uh, behind closed doors with Prime Minister Modi. So this is something that the U.S. does. We, we continue to stand up for values and principles, but at the same time, there is a, a way that this can be done that, frankly, can be more productive than getting into some kind of public spat over the issue. And I, I think that, you know, we can really see by how the G20 went and the support for India there that the U.S. wants to be able to pull out all stops for India, believes that India will play an important role in forming global coalitions, in bringing together the uh, developing world with the developed world and can play sort of a bridge and, and we saw that play out at the G20 just a few weeks ago. And I think, you know, ultimately the U.S. believes that India um, will be, you know, a force for good in the world, that India will play an extremely helpful role in countering China's efforts to dominate the region. And that's in the U.S. interest. It's in the U.S. interest to see India have the capabilities it needs to stand up to China and to be able to play that role of balancing Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific region. So I know there will always be differences between the U.S. and India, and things won't be perfect between the two. But I think by and large, we can see that both India and the United States highly value partnership. They want to see it grow. They're invested in it. And it's hard to see a situation that would disrupt the momentum at this point. Yeah, I agree. I think it seems clear that the differences in the relationship don't disturb the relationship. They can be handled and managed and still uh, identify those opportunities to work together. As you said, that the support the US but others showed India through the G20 and the Modi visit to Washington, D.C., their agreement, the joint statement, which was uh, so significant, really, for people who, who get a read of it to see uh, the value placed on the technological partnership shows that the U.S. knows that uh, India is a real powerhouse in that, uh, in that area. Raji, what about from Delhi's point of view? And I'm particularly keen on understanding your view on whether India feels more confident that the U.S. and Australia, for that matter, uh, is in for the long haul with India, or if any doubts remain because of history around the US policies in the Cold War or Australia's views on the original Quad? There are no reasons really for any concerns, whether it is the India-Australia or India-US relationship. But certainly the Indian establishment does seem to have some concerns. And these are not just about history and not really history, therefore, but are more on current issues like questions on democracy, questions on human rights or the growing illiberalism, the treatment of minorities, all of these issues. So there's a certain amount of discomfort and uh, sort of a lack of comfort, essentially. But the U.S.-India and India-Australia relationship are therefore in a scene seen as some sort of a uh, relationship of convenience, which will also mean that there is always going to be certain amount of discomfort that will continue to play. And that is more to do with the current trends in the Indian domestic context than history of the Cold War, etc. And if you actually look at it on these issues, India seems to be a lot closer and a lot more comfortable with countries like Russia and China. That's an unusual kind of a thing. But I think on this particular point on democracy and a lot of the developments that we see in the Indian domestic context, they seem to be closer to uh, Russia and China. But uh, the way they look at India-US and India-Australia relationship, these are primarily seen as relationships that are driven by a certain amount of transactional logic, and that is going to carry forward. But I think if you look at the way the U.S. has been managing this particular aspect, both sides talk of the democratic India, especially in the last few months, even in the run-up to the G20, uh, this has been particularly the case. So there are, have been repeated questions on India's democracy, democratic issues. The U.S. has actually found a nice way of putting it 
where it is not going to be offending India, but at the same time, talk about it. So even at the G20 summit on the sidelines of it, there were a lot of questions about it. And the US response was that India has a vibrant democracy and there's no perfect scorecard to sort of analyze who has a perfect democracy and so on and so forth. And in fact, the US itself has to do a lot more in in their own country. So I think the US has managed to find a way to box it in and quarantine so that it does not really affect the rest of the relationship, the broader strategic relationship between India and the U.S. And on the point Lisa brought out on the G20, the U.S. Uh, pulling in all weight to make sure that the India presidency was a success. Even a day earlier, I think there were questions whether there was going to be a G20 statement, an outcome statement from the summit. But I think the U.S., Australia, Japan, and all of, the, all of India's new security partners ensured that India was given all the support it needed in order to get a statement out of it because a lack of a statement would have been considered a success for Russia and China. And I think that's something that US and other partners were very keen to avoid. So I think that was on the G20. But I think overall on on your question, I think India-US, India-Australia relationship, it's not a relationship of great comfort because of the current trends, but one of convenience. But certainly it's not the historical issues that are coming into play, but it's a current set of issues, developments that are going to play out from time to time. So you will see this happening from time to time. India's discomfort may become sort of visible to others, but I think India will still continue with this partnership because of the broader strategic trends in the region, because of the structural issues in the region that really needs India to go out and build on this partnership with the new security partners, whether it is the US, Australia, Japan, France, Vietnam, Singapore, and kind of thing. So I think this is uh, something that is mutually convenient from India's point of view. Uh, Roger, I, th- I think uh, our listeners will have really uh, enjoyed that and uh, really gained an understanding of what you mean by, at times, a relationship of convenience uh, rather than sharing of historical values. Lisa, do you have a view there on, on what Raji is talking about, that uh, we have to accept that there is a bit of discomfort in the relationship, but it, it can be compartmentalised because the way of the world at the moment sees Australia, the US and India aligned on the strategic matters? Well, yes, I think that that is accurate. And I think when you say strategic matters, I think, you know, we can be clear, we're talking about China and and managing the competition with China. And that seems to be, you know, the core focus of all three countries right now. And so you definitely see that convergence there. But, you know, again, I think it it is important that, you know, values continue to shape the partnership as well. And I think, you know, Raji mentioned that the U.S. even admits it doesn't have a perfect democracy either and that, you know, that we all have challenges. But it's also incumbent on us to be focusing on how important these principles and values are. And I think, you know, in the case of India, it's important to to remember that, you know, India has this very strong foundation of democracy and protection of religious minorities is enshrined in its own constitution. So it's not like these are values that the U.S. or Australia would be trying to impose on India. These are values that Indians themselves value tremendously. So I think, you know, we can give each other slack on certain issues, but we can also remind each other how important these values and principles are in meeting the challenges, the the most serious national security challenges that we face, because of course, we do face threats from authoritarian powers, not only China, Russia as well, who want to remake the international order to bend to, you know, their way of seeing things and some of their revisionist policies. So it is important that we continue to acknowledge that our values and principles that we share are part of our partnership. Yeah, Raji, do you agree that while there is uh, discomfort and there's maybe at times a marriage of convenience, there are still principles that we all work together on, whether it be in terms of countering that malicious behaviour from China uh, or from the more positive angle and working together trilaterally and in other forms like the Quad for regional stability. 
uh, which we all have as a principle. No, absolutely. And I think that's a big elephant in the room. The China China factor has been so significant to an extent that we are sort of downplaying some of the current issues like the erosion of democracy, which has become a serious problem in India. But I think we are bringing all our efforts together to essentially create an effective deterrence. And this is both in terms of building up each other's defensive capabilities, but also in terms of this sort of a certain amount of diplomatic maneuvering that each of us are doing in order to put a strong front against China, moderating China's behavior. We, nobody is talking about containing. Containing, I think that's a, a ship that has sailed long time ago. But in terms of how do we build an effective deterrence, not just in terms of military capabilities, but also diplomatically and morally, how do we essentially come together in a way that is useful in uh, getting China to play by the rules of the road? international law. And I think that's the common effort that is binding us all together, despite the occasional irritants that India may feel. India has that discomfort that, I, like I said, it's going to play out from time to time. But I think the fact that we all have a common strategic goal in terms of China, its behavior, in terms of wanting a stable, prosperous, inclusive Indo-Pacific, I think that's a broader strategic goal that even India does not want to leave out and therefore wanting to work with all of India's new security partners, of which US and Australia are two critical partners in that regard. Yeah, well said. I, I, I think that the ability to talk about the discomfort shows how far the relationship with both the US and Australia has come. I, I think it was only a few years ago where there was discomfort, but we couldn't talk about it at all. So I think there's definitely been a step change there. Speaking about discomfort, how uh, do you see the current India-Canada rift are playing out. It, it probably deserves a, a podcast to itself, but without getting into the details of alleged foreign interference uh, or over-tolerance of violent extremism, let's canvas the impact on both the US and Australia for a moment. Uh, I can't recall another occasion where for the US and Australia, there's been such a rift between a fellow Five Eyes partner in Canada uh, and a fellow Quad partner in India. Uh, so, Lisa, uh, how do you see this issue playing out? And in particular, do you think the US and Australia have walked this tightrope well, or have we been too silent in some areas? Well, I think the US is really trying to help both countries tamp down the issue, deal with the issue. You know, look, the US stood with Canada and you know, called on India to cooperate with Canada's investigation. And in fact, the external affairs minister, Jai Shankar, was in the United States a couple of weeks ago. And there, you know, was a meeting between Secretary Blinken and Jai Shankar. And the joint statement that was issued at the end of that meeting did not actually mention this issue, the India-Canada tensions over this issue which I thought was was quite striking. But at the same time, the external affairs minister indicated that India would cooperate with Canada's investigation during his visit to the United States. So that tells me that the U.S. is probably playing a role behind the scenes to you know, bring the two countries together to, to deal with the issue. And it has been out of the headlines more recently. Certainly, you know, sent shockwaves everywhere when Prime Minister Trudeau uh, said this on the floor of the Canadian yeah. Parliament. That made quite a splash. But, you know, then you saw at the UN General Assembly, the country's officials did not raise the issue in their statements. So I think there are efforts being made to try to, you know, repair the breach and to see some cooperation behind the scenes. But, the, you know, this is a difficult issue. Interestingly, the Palestine issue does not resonate inside India. It's really, yeah. there's not, it's a dead movement. And sometimes you have these expatriate communities who are much more extreme in their viewpoints than anybody is actually inside India. So, this, you know, this has been a long issue of tension between India and Canada. India arguing that Canada has not done enough to deal with these elements who India claims are, you know, sending money and provoking violence inside India. You know, we, we have not seen any evidence for what happened. So 
it's all you know very murky right now. So I, I don't think over the long term this is an issue that is going to really disrupt the U.S.-India relationship. I think the U.S. has invested you know so much in this relationship, and you know I talked about the momentum that we've seen that you know this kind of murky issue. I don't think the U.S. would want to allow this to really disrupt all the progress that the Biden administration has made with India over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and again, I think it shows that how important both the bilateral relationship is there, but also the Quad, uh, how significant the Quad is for all of us wanting to make sure that we respond appropriately in support of uh, both uh, our longtime Five Eyes partner and our Quad partner as well. Uh, Raji, you, Lisa's uh, obviously described it well, uh, talked about how murky it is, has talked about the interesting element that the Khalistan issue uh, actually plays less in India these days compared to uh, some other countries where there's diaspora. Uh, how do you see it playing out? No, absolutely. That's the most surprising part of this whole controversy because this whole uh, issue, because the Khalistan movement has been dead for like 10, 15 years now. There is just no support base, even as there are uh, certain elements, whether it is in Canada or in some of the other countries that may talk about this issue, talk them out and call for a referendum and so on and so forth. That has had no effect absolutely in the in the Indian context, in the domestic context. There's been no support for such kind of moments within India. Khalistan movement has been completely dead. So why would India rake up such an issue at this critical point of time? And in, this is this is going to have an impact not just um, in terms of the bilateral context between India and Canada, but this is also Canada being part of the uh, Five Eyes arrangement. It has larger connotations, and I think those implications I'm not entirely sure that India has thought through. And at this point of time, when the whole Justin Trudeau statement came out, the kind of support base that came out, starting with the Modi, Prime Minister Modi, that has been really shocking, so to say, because I think, again, you have an election that is going to come up. So I think that's part of the, maybe part of the calculations in a sense to trump up the domestic support in terms of the Modi government's ability to stand up to any pressure, its ability to deal with terrorism and so on and so forth. Again, or terrorism being touted as a major issue once again. So it's found quite a bit of takers in the domestic context to what Modi has, uh, Modi government has done or how it is standing up to Canada and the general pressure, the broader pressure. But one, it is very, very sort of a, it's strange that India has taken on this issue at this point of time when we have much larger strategic issues to deal with than to deal with Khalistan moment. But I think the generally the relationship between Justin Trudeau and India, the between India and Canada and the Trudeau government has not been particularly, it's always been on shaky waters. And uh, somehow the Indian views that there's so much of moralistic sort of a standing in Canada to try and, whereas India, according to Indian media, they are trying to call out the kind of double standards, the hypocrisy, in, in Canada's own behavior and so on and so forth, giving support to terrorists, uh, various terrorist movements, whether they even called out the LTT support uh, that Canada has shielded many of the LTT channels who are staying on and kind of encouraging those kind of moments. So it's not very clear as to why India would go along and stake up this issue at this point of time. But in the domestic context, the kind of support that Modi has managed to get for this, I think that's going to play up even in the context of the, the national elections that's going to be coming up in less than six months, in a sense. So, yeah. Very interesting. And, of course, it's uh, there's both the burden and blessing of democracies. And the key for us all is to ensure that uh, whether there are uh, friendships or uh, lack of friendships between uh, the leaders at any given moment, that the uh, relationships uh, between the two countries are far more important than uh, at that given moment in time uh, in terms of the two leaders. So hopefully uh, that, uh, that pans out here. And uh, Lisa, I'm sure you're right. There's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. Uh, just staying on India's foreign policy for the moment, uh, India is viewed as having a longstanding policy of non-alignment. Uh, I often think this is a slight misperception or a little bit too simplistic. India doesn't have alliances the way that the US and Australia has, of course, but there is no doubt that India lent towards the Soviets in the Cold War. Of course, there were reasons, including the US pushing away from Delhi to get closer to China, 
and that this leaning or alignment has shifted in the last decade or so with far closer ties to the US and with the revitalization of the Quad, both again, largely to do with respective China policies as we've discussed. I'm keen to hear from you both uh, on the strengths and weaknesses of India's foreign policy strategy, and also to help our listeners gain some clarity uh, on India's ability to engage with all nations, but to still prioritize its own national security and regional stability. I know there are many people, including foreign policy experts, who are confused by India being able to have close relationships within the Quad, but then the next day host or attend a meeting of the BRICS grouping with Russia and China and others. Raji, I might start with you to explain how all these things can be consistent. The Quad and BRICS, the history of Russia, threats from China, no alliances, but clearly leaning one way or the other now more towards the US. Is it just a chessboard that India knows how to play better than most, or is it as messy as it appears? I think it's fairly messy, even to insiders. Yeah, it might seem like, where does India stand? I would say that India is a fairly strong state of its own, and many believe that it can afford to be non-aligned. But when it comes to China, we cannot take China on, on our own, and therefore we want to work with other like-minded partners. But I think there's also sort of a, the post-colonial history that needs to be kept in mind, and therefore India does not want to be overly dependent on any one country. This has been the case during the even during the 60s, 70s, and despite the Soviet leaning. India also had a good relationship with the US in the 60s and so on and so forth. India has a certain amount of fear of dependence on any one power and that is something that is not going to change in the foreseeable future. So even as India engages BRICS and the SEO and the Quad the very next day, but I think it's also very clear as to which one of these partnerships is important in terms of strategic play when you look at it. There is a certain amount of pragmatism that has come to India as it approaches partners. So it approaches BRICS, RIC and SEO. That it seems like it is more to do with the fact Fearing and missing out is what is going to, so what, what is China doing in these kind of groupings? What is China's agenda in these kind of groupings? We don't want to miss it out, miss out on those uh, those points, and therefore we want to be part of it. But when it comes to its meaningful strategic engagements, such as with the Quad, it is a very positive agenda, and we are very, very clear. But I think I would agree it can seem quite messy, quite busy, as well, because given the short staff nature of the MEA bureaucracy, its calendar can get pretty busy in dealing with far too many of these multiple groupings. But dealing with Russia, I think that's been a problem for quite some time. And I think that Russia relationship is also going through some big changes in recent years. It's not the same Russia relationship that even in the post-Cold War era when even President Putin was in office. Today's Russia-India relationship is significantly different. And uh, given the kind of Russia-China closer partnership that we are seeing literally every single day, I think that is becoming more of a problem. So our engagement within groupings like the Quad and other newer millilateral partnerships are way too important. And you can see from the kind of engagement, the sophistication, the kind of complexities that we have brought in in terms of our engagements diplomatically, militarily, we, we work together, joint exercise and so on and so forth. So the kind of engagements with groups like the Quad and other multilateral partnerships are significantly more advanced and more sophisticated than India's engagement within BRICS and RIC and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So that may continue for a while, but I think India, I think in, overall it knows what partnerships really mean for its long-term strategy and so on and so forth. It's a very good description of why India is able to attend both Quad and BRICS and uh, other meetings, but your description of uh, the relationship that India has with its Quad partners and other democracies is perhaps more sophisticated and perhaps one that entails a bit more trust than it has with its uh, BRICS partners. Uh, Lisa, uh, do you agree with Raji's uh, description of how India can do all of these things? Uh, how do we in the US and Australia work with Delhi, who can one day talk with us about uh, all things Beijing, but then the next day engage with China at BRICS? Does Raji's description show why this is able to happen uh, or uh, is it something that we should be concerned about from a, uh, a long-term perspective? Yeah, I think it's, it's a valid question. 
but I think what India is trying to do is is keep a, a hand in all camps. And as Raji was saying, you know, we should trust that India understands the importance of its relationships with the Quad countries yeah. and that its participation in things like BRICS and the SCO is a way for it to, you know, keep an eye on what's happening, maybe even have some influence within those organizations that might actually benefit the Quad countries. So I think, you know, we we, we do need to trust that, you know, India understands that, you know, the, the Quad are the countries that it can trust in terms of its fundamental national strategic interests and, you know, be okay with the fact that India is going to participate in these other groupings. But I guess, you know, I do have a question, you know, what kind of role India will actually play in these groups? I know, you know, what it wants to do, but will that actually play out in the way that India would hope that it would? And, I, and I'm not so sure that we know the answer to that. For instance, India would like to try to drive a wedge between Russia and China. I think, you know, they're trying very hard and they hope very much that we would not see the Russia-China partnership get too much closer. But, you know, I think that Russia is inevitably going to become more reliant on China as we move forward. And if there were to be another major border crisis between India and China, I'm not sure that India could count on Russian support. Russia may decide that it needs China more than it needs its partnership with India. So again, I, I understand what India is doing. I'm just not so sure that it would work out the way that, that India is, is hoping for it to. Can I just come in on that, uh, Justin? Please. So the whole question, uh, yeah, in fact, the Russia relationship has been a bit of a puzzle to at least some of the strategic community, in a sense, in India, because at one level, you can say that the Indian articulation has been that we don't want Russia to go completely into the Chinese camp and that India should be continue to kind of create some sort of a divide, some sort of a cushion for Russia so that they don't feel left out completely alone in a sense. And that is assuming that India has some sort of leverage, India has some card to play. I'm not sure that India has any sort of leverage left with as far as dealing with, because to Russia, which feels pretty isolated given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which most Indians would not even say Russian invasion. They just simply say Russia-Ukraine conflict. So given the Russian invasion of Ukraine from 2013-2014 to current invasion, there is certain amount of isolation that Russia continues to feel, but that is not something. And therefore, Russia wants to have a far closer strategic partnership with China, even as a, as a junior partner, they are willing to play that role without any problem. But India is assuming that it has the power and leverage to kind of play, to create a wedge, like Lisa said. And I don't think India has that. India may have a lot of at all ambitions in that regard that we want to create an influential power in that sense to create a wedge. But I don't think India has that sort of a wedge to play. So that's one of the aspects as to why India will continue to kind of keep the Russia card open, will not come out strongly, criticize uh, Russia, by at least call out Russia by name for its Russian invasion of Ukraine and kind of things. And this goes to part of the issue about Indian foreign policy goals. And one of the goals is that India wants to have good relations with all of its major powers. And, and that includes Russia. And that includes achieving some semblance or normalcy, even in the relationship with China, so to say. So if all of that is going to continue we don't call it non-alignment. We call, we call it multi-alignment. That is really, you know, we call it by different names, but essentially the same thing. If India is going to put its foot in multiple camps, at the end of the day, in a crisis, it is, I don't, I'm not sure who will be on India's side. Nobody, every India thinks it's a friend of everyone, but being in multiple camps, opposing camps, India is actually possibly a friend to nobody. And I think from an Indian perspective, to me, it seems, it seems fairly clear to me. I don't know what the establishment sort of a logic is, because to me, if managing China is the number one national security issue, as a late uh, CDS, the chief of defense staff, as General Rawat said, 
If that is the case, to me, it seems very clear that the U.S. and other partners like Australia, Japan, others are those are the countries that are going to be vital in managing China. Will Russia stand with India in managing China? The answer seems fairly clear to me that it is a no. It's a big no. So it seems fairly straightforward to me that managing China is your biggest strategic issue. And for that, it is not Russia that is going to be uh, on your side. It is going to be the US. It is going to be Australia. It is going to be Japan. It's going to be the Quad and all the, all the other minilateral partnerships. It is these relationships that are most important for India. Well said, Raji. I, I think both Lisa and I are nodding at your multi-alignment thesis. And indeed, I think probably what we're seeing instead of India successfully splitting Russia and China, uh, what we're seeing more likely is uh, India drifting away from Russia. And that, uh, of course, is uh, excellent from our perspectives, uh, the more isolated Russia and China can be. Uh, now, while it's proved challenging to get India uh, to choose sides, I'm going to see if I can get you two to choose sides here between two India-focused scholars who you both know well. As the only non-alliance partner amongst the Quad, there are different views on what India would do in a conflict situation in the Indo-Pacific. A friend to us all and US-India expert Ashley Tellis from Carnegie Endowment for International Peace wrote a few months ago that the US has been willing to overlook India's democratic erosion and refusal to condemn Moscow because India is seen as a vital long-term partner. Ashley wrote that if the aim was to have India materially support the US in any crisis, the bet would be misplaced. Meanwhile, Arzan Tarapur from Stanford, and I have to add a fellow here at Aspie, responded to that TELUS piece saying India remains not only a good long-term bet, but the best bet as a capable partner helping to resist Chinese coercion. Arzan's message is that we need to be careful not to have unrealistic expectations on India while not having those same expectations on others, whether throughout Southeast Asia or Europe. Uh, I think in that respect, there's no doubt about India's vital role in strategic balance in the region. So to put you on the spot, Lisa, to you first, uh, who do you agree with, Ashley or Arzan? Or is it the case that two analyses can actually be right simultaneously with India being vital for strategic balance, but there being no guarantee in a conflict situation? Yes, I think both Ashley and Arzan have good points. Both have valid points in their pieces. Look, Ashley was right that the U.S. should not expect that India would play a military role if there is a conflict in the Taiwan Strait. I think ultimately India will do what's best for India. And, you know, there have been some people that have asked, well, would India be willing to provoke conflict on its border, its disputed border with China in order to distract China? Well, I think definitely no, because, you know, India has fought a war with China that it lost very badly in 1962. They had a border crisis three years ago. India is not going to want to provoke China on its border. So I think we need to be realistic about what we can expect from India in the event of a, a major conflict in the Taiwan Strait. So I think Ashley was right about that. That said, I agree with Arzan that India is still a good bet for the United States and that the U.S. should continue to invest in the relationship with India. India's influence in the Indo-Pacific is only going to increase over time, and that is a good thing. We want India to have that increased influence in the region, and we should be going out of our way to support that. But at the same time, let's be realistic about our expectations of India. And I think that is what Ashley Tellis was trying to say with his piece. I think if you asked Ashley if he thought India was a good bet for the United States, he would agree that India was a good bet. I highly doubt he chose the title yeah. of the piece. Yeah. I think that was probably the, the editor's attempt at you know clickbait and, and getting people to click on it. But you know, I'm fairly certain that Ashley agree, still agrees that India is a good bet. He just wants US policymakers to be realistic about what they can expect so they're not disappointed in the event that India is not 
doing some of the things that perhaps they would wish India would do, but that may not be good for India's own security over the long term. Yeah, it's uh, probably the case that Ashley and I are actually closer to agreement than the articles uh, made out. Uh, Raji, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's in, uh, fairly easy because I think there is no major disagreement between Ashley Telles and Arsan. I think Telles was essentially trying to make the point that India is not an ally because given the kind of close partnership that we have seen, there is a sense that India is almost like an ally. But I think he was trying to bring about a certain amount of caution in Washington, cautioning against over-expectations but because that could lead to disappointments instead, therefore. Ashley's efforts was trying to get Washington to be more realistic about what you can expect out of India. But of course, like you said, uh, the title of the piece was very catchy. That Ashley himself has said many times that he did not give that title on many interviews. He said that. But I think that really caught the wind. And even though his piece was not about giving up on India, but have a more realistic expectation of what the U.S. can expect out of India. But I think, yeah, Arsan was making it slightly bold, but I think both the authors were making the same point. Ashley was more in terms of cautioning the establishment in D.C. that they should not get so carried away with the India partnership and imagine that in case of a Taiwan Strait crisis, that India would be on board. Unless India's interests are directly impacted, I'm not entirely sure what kind of a role India would play in any crisis that involves China. So that's the caution that I think Ashley was trying to bring in, in terms of what to expect out of India. Yeah, and probably if, if there was negativity, uh, or as you say, caution in Ashley's piece, it, it was largely, I think, as you're both saying, more so uh, less directed towards Delhi and directed towards DC to be uh, realistic, as you've both said. And in part of that is just to uh, not ignore areas of concern when they come up from time to time, whether they be freedom of speech or human rights issues. Yep. On that theme of domestic politics, Raji, and how domestic politics can play into foreign policy, of course, we have uh, elections coming up in the, the first half of next year in India. How do you see that playing out? Obviously, Prime Minister Modi uh, looks like he'll be re-elected quite easily. How do you see a highly successful re-election affecting India's foreign policy? I don't work on domestic politics, but I, of course, know what is happening. And to the extent I understand, BJP is going to come back. Modi will be back in office. But there can be surprises. 2004 elections happened. Similarly, 2009 elections happened. But because of the new coalitions, uh, the India coalition, the opposition parties, all of them coming together as India coalition, they could make some dent maybe if they will reduce the majority, for instance, for the BJP. What kind of results would we see? Uh, we still don't know. We, we really have no idea as to how that might have an impact, what kind of an impact will have on the results finally. But irrespective of who comes to power, as far as the foreign policy issues are concerned, there is likely to be more continuity uh, in a sense. And I think that, like I said, uh, because of the structural changes in the Indo-Pacific and the kind of geopolitical uh, flux that we see, India will continue to build on those partnerships that it has already done with the US, with Australia, with Japan, the Quad, and any number of minilateral partnerships that have come about in the last close to 10 years. And I think those relationships are going to get further strengthened because some of the structural issues are not going to get resolved anytime in the near future. So as long as you don't have that any semblance of um, sort of a stability in terms of the geopolitical balance of power equations, which is going to be the case, I think India will be compelled. India will go along with the, the current set of partnerships, go on to strengthen those partnerships with the US, Australia and others in the coming years. And uh, of course, Lisa, one of the arguments that we shouldn't have such high expectations on India is that the rest of the democratic world also have our own issues. Uh, next year, there will be elections in the US as well. I know in Australia, we are looking at what impact a second Trump term would have on Australia's interests. Uh, you and I, for example, have previously spoken about political will being the biggest threat to the success of AUKUS, for example. As we look to the upcoming visit to the US of the Australian Prime Minister, undoubtedly AUKUS will be the top or a top priority, uh, and there will hopefully be progress in areas such as technology, safeguards and tech transfer. 
So what do you see as the potential impact on US foreign policy with a second Trump term? Would any of the agreements announced in this upcoming visit, for example, or AUKUS itself be in doubt? Or should we actually look to the first Trump term and be comforted at knowing that there was resilience in the system provided through the strength of US institutions like Congress, the Department of Defense, the intel community, uh, and of course, national security staff? Well, look, the US domestic political scene is really unpredictable, and I hesitate to make any kind of prediction. But what I would say is if Trump were to have a second term in office, I don't think our friends like Australia should panic about that. The U.S. is still a democracy. Uh, Foreign policy is still based on consensus. And we have a lot of checks and balances within our system. And I would also point to some of the consistencies in foreign policy from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, one of the major policies being U.S.-China policy. I think you would agree that there's been more consistency than difference when it comes to the U.S. approach to China. This is the same for the broader Indo-Pacific strategy. If you put side by side the Trump Indo-Pacific strategic framework, which was released to the public in January 2021, next to the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, which was released a year later in February 2022, you would see a lot of similarities uh, between those two strategies. And AUKUS, you know, is no exception. There is large bipartisan support for AUKUS. You see this in Congress. So I think that, you know, we have to remember that, you know, whereas the domestic politics is very volatile, the U.S. is polarized in many, many ways when it comes to our domestic politics right now. When you look at foreign policy, a lot of times there's much more consistency than not. You know, it really does, the division stops at the water's edge more times than not in the United States. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that we can have confidence in uh, the checks and balances, but we're going to have to, we would have to work very hard as, as we always do, no matter who is in power at showing why Australia's interests or India's interests should be prioritised. Having having been in Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's office at the time President Trump came to power, Raji used the word discomfort earlier in a different question. Uh, there was definitely a lot of discomfort on many days. Uh, but, I think, but, yeah. but I think it was also very interesting as to how China was looking at the Trump presidency. Because I think it's brought about certain amount of restraint on the part of China because it was unclear how the Trump administration would respond and would it actually go out for an all-out conflict or would it be more in terms of sanctions? It was not very clear and that in a sense brought about some restraint in how much China wanted to push the U.S. or push others to the wall. There was a limit in terms of how China tested the waters in a sense at that point of time during the President's Trump presidency. Oh, there's no doubt. And it goes to Lisa's question in terms of what we have seen many of the China policies of the Trump administration. There's a reason why they weren't upended when President Biden came to power, because they were necessary policies. My concern would be that in my view, this is just a personal view, many of those good policies that have continued were less President Trump's own and the people around him and his staff and other areas who were, who were really focused on what mattered, including sanctions around technologies and calling out foreign interference. I think in part, Lisa Keen, for your view on this, but I think in part Beijing would be looking at a Trump presidency or a similar type of personality as an opportunity because of the transactional nature element that, that President Trump and others are of the view that they play this transactional game very well. I think something that Australia and other countries would need to lock in behind would be to say to the United States and all of their institutions, don't give up strategic ambiguity in relation to Taiwan for the sake of a trade deal. I think if if we were sitting in Beijing, we would be at least thinking that the opportunity would be there to offer a president like Trump something that would get them something strategic in return. So I think that element, while there are checks and balances, 
I think there is a real responsibility and obligation on countries like Australia to work with many different stakeholders in the US to ensure that we all stood by some of these principles. Well, I, I think you're right, Justin, that you know the Chinese could see opportunities in taking advantage of Trump's transactional approach to everything, including foreign policy. But there's another aspect to a Trump administration that China might welcome, which is you know, the lack of focus on really nurturing alliances and partnerships. You know, we we did see a different approach from the Trump administration on alliances, just looking at NATO, for example. And I know that, you know, a lot of European countries were very unhappy with Trump's approach to NATO. You know, on the one hand, understandable, we want to see these countries investing more in their own security and stepping up and burden sharing. But there also has to be a a fundamental commitment to these alliances and partnerships. So China might just welcome that lack of commitment that a Trump administration could show to alliances and partnerships. So, yeah, I think that is a concern. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. And again, I, I think Raji's use of the word predictability and unpredictability. In one sense, unpredictability in relation to what the US would do in response to Chinese malicious actions, that there may very well be a deterrent effect there, I think is the point Raji was making. Uh, I, I think the, the balance there is that we probably don't want a lack of predictability when it comes to allies and, and friends. And so, well so, said. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. This has been a fabulous conversation and podcast. I do have a final question for you both before letting you go. If our listeners are intrigued by the history of India since independence and its relationships and foreign policy strategies, which book would each of you recommend that they should go out and immediately buy and read? Uh, Raji, we'll start with you. So to me, if you're looking for a broad book on India's foreign policy, I will go with uh, Ambassador Shamsarin's uh, How India Sees the World from Kautilya to 21st Century that came out in 2020. And that's a nice, comprehensive, very balanced, nuanced interpretation of how India's foreign policy has evolved. You have tons of other books, but I think uh, to me, this is one book that is a very comprehensive, but it's a very balanced interpretation of how India's role in the world has changed, how India's foreign policy has evolved in us. And I think so that would be Ambassador Shamsaran for me. And of course, uh, he's also written How China Sees India and the World, which is another excellent book. What about you, Lisa? Well, I think if you really want to understand the development of democracy in India, I would have to recommend the book India After Gandhi, The History of the World's Largest Democracy by Ramachandra Guha. It's an older book. I actually reviewed it back in 2009, but he's recently updated it in 2019. And it, it really provides remarkable details on those constituent assembly debates of the late 1940s when India was writing its constitution. And and it shows how those who were debating these issues were very conscious of the multi-ethnic and multi-religious nature of India. And they knew, they knew that building in protection of minorities into the constitution was extremely important and that it would determine the quality of Indian democracy. So I think it's really important if you want to understand this history of India and the author, uh, Ramachandra Guha, is clear about his own concerns about the future of Indian democracy. And I think it's now is a good time to read this book that raises these issues and that you know contrasts the original intent of Indian democracy and what we see today with the rise of Hindu nationalism. Uh, Excellent. I think, Raji, I I got you both thinking about books uh, before starting. I think uh, it looks like you probably would have also uh, gone with that book. uh, Absolutely. uh, In in fact, that was my second book in in mind, because I think that uh, along with the Ramchandra Guha and Ambassador Shamsaran, I think you really get a good sense of how India's democracy, India's history with the whole evolution of the uh, concept of democracy has evolved. And of course, with Shamsaran is my 
much more uh, point uh, on the much more on the uh, fund policy evolution but i think the two books together should make it a very very interesting reading and a nice contrast to how the current trend the current trends in a sense so yeah absolutely excellent uh, and and i might add a, a third for our listeners a friend of us all Tan Vimadan uh, has written Fateful Triangle, another uh, very good read. Uh, Lisa Raji, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've gone through many, many issues of complete relevance to uh, all our countries and the region. I, uh, I really hope that we can do this again soon, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Wonderful. And great, Lisa. Great to be in the conversation with you. Likewise, Raji. That's all we have time for today on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.